Well, good morning, everyone. Greetings from Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in Armstrong. Just it's a pleasure to to uh, to be here with you this morning. I'd like you to to know that your church and your pastor are in our prayers uh, weekly as a church. It's a uh, it's a joy to be able to to pray for you, and I trust to know that you're praying for us as well. So. Uh, this morning, I would like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 42, from where we read our call to worship this morning. Isaiah 42. This morning, we're going to look at the first 13 verses of the chapter. So I will read those 13 verses, and then we'll pray before we uh, look at them in detail. So Isaiah chapter 42, beginning at verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord and that is my name and my glory I will not give to another nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, and his praise from the ends of the earth. You go down to the sea and all that is in it. You coastlands and you inhabitants of them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud, and he shall prevail against his enemies. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Well, Lord God, most high, we come before you now, and we ask that you might be pleased to bless us with, the, with your presence, Lord, that, that your spirit would be here among us now as we seek to examine this passage of your word. Father, without the spirit, this is nothing but, a, but an empty ritual. But with your spirit here, Lord, we know that the, as the word is being preached, that the, that the people hear from you, Lord, and we do pray that, that that would be the case this morning. We pray that you would speak through this word and the word preached, that you would fill us with your spirit in preaching and in hearing and in listening and applying this to our hearts, that your people would leave here edified and encouraged in our, in, our sa in our Savior. Lord, I pray that if there be any here this morning who are not in Christ, who have not been rescued from those, the prison houses of darkness that we will read about, Lord, that, they, that today would be that day of salvation where they look to the Savior and he frees them from the bondage that they are in. They leave here rejoicing and, so, uh, and singing a new song. Lord, we pray to that end, and it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. So in this passage of scripture that we find here in Isaiah 42, we have what I call the commissioning of the servant of Yahweh. The servant of Yahweh. I'm sure you're familiar with when I say Yahweh, I mean the Lord, as we find in the, in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, capital L, capital O-R-D, Yahweh, the name of the Lord. So if you're uh, unfamiliar with that, that's, that is what I, when I say Yahweh, that's who we're talking about. So the, uh, and Yahweh commissions his servant here in this passage. And 
and uh, we have a certain individual here, a certain one who is called the chosen servant, and he's given a special task to complete. So what's going to help us to understand this passage here, and we first need to identify the servant, and when we ask that question, who is this servant, the Bible makes it clear without question who we're talking about here because Matthew in his gospel chapter 12 verse 18 through 21 he quotes these first four verses of Isaiah 42 and he attributes them directly to the Lord Jesus um, as the fulfillment of this so we have no question who is he talking about here he's talking about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ that's ultimately who this servant is here so now, when we consider over the past few weeks, it's been Christmas time and, and uh, the Christmas season. Traditionally, it's that time of year when we, when we consider the birth of Christ, the incarnation. And the, the incarnation is the fact that the, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God himself, that he took to himself, he assumed a human nature, and therefore is, is, is fully God and yet fully man as well, dwelling in his own creation. And then we have to understand that the incarnation has eternity in its focus. The incarnation, and what I mean by that is that uh, the, the ultimate purpose of the incarnation is that so, so that man, the creature, can behold the God, the creator, and, and see him and be with him face to face and dwell with him for eternity. The incarnation, that is the end, the end goal of the incarnation. But... Uh, or we see that John John talks about that um, the man the creature beholding the glory of God the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory He says later on in the, in chapter one No man has seen God at any time the only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father that's begotten language He has declared Him or He has manifested Him He has revealed Him we can we can behold man the creature can behold the glory of of His Creator through the incarnation. The incarnation allows God and man to dwell together in the new heavens, the new earth that we see in, in the book of Revelation at the end when we, when we see how everything is, this age is completes and finishes, when it reaches its talos, its goal. We have God, as it says there, the tabernacle of God is with men and he's dwelling with them. He himself will be with them. They shall see his face. That's the language of Revelation 21, 21 verse 3 and 22 verse 4. But in order for that to happen, in order for man to be able to dwell with his God for eternity, there is uh, something must happen. And, there's, and the, this, this servant, the, the Christ, he has a task. He's given a task. He's commissioned to do something. There. And this task is what he does upon his, the incarnation, upon his first coming. When he comes and he's born in the stable in Bethlehem, that begins his earthly ministry of fulfilling this task, carrying out this task here so that he might have his people dwelling with him in glory for eternity. So this passage is where the servant receives his marching orders. So we're going to break the passage into, into three sections. Here, then there's a, there's a lot here, so we'll try to we'll try to move through it quickly. Uh, verse one through four, we have the presentation of the servant, where Yahweh presents his servant. Here he is. We have the mission of the servant, verse five through nine, where he receives his uh, his his marching orders, and then we have the victory of Yahweh via this servant in uh, verses ten through thirteen. <clears throat> So verse 1 through 4, the presentation of the servant. Yahweh says, behold, my, my servant. Now, we're not going to go, again, tr trying to get too deep into the theology here, but we think of Christ, we think of the Son of God, 
fully God. You've, I'm sure you've focusing on that over the past few weeks with the incarnation. This one who's fully God. He's, he's one with the Father. He, he fully um, participates in the divine essence, we might say. He is, he is fully God with, without limits, no limitations to who he is. The full and infinite God. That's who this one is. But then how can he be the servant of God? How can he be, how can he be if he's equal with God, how can he, and, and, he's, and he's Yahweh himself then, how can he be the servant of God? Well, I think the easiest way for us to understand this is in, in who he is, fully God. He is not subordinate. He's not less than. He's not the servant of God in who he is as the second person of the Trinity. But in what he does as the Redeemer, as, uh, upon the incarnation, as he takes to himself human nature, as, as, um, as the God-man in that task, in that um, the, the economy of redemption, we call it, he becomes the servant of of Yahweh in order to carry out this, uh, this task, this commission in God's great plan of redemption. So we have the incarnate Christ here, the servant of Yahweh. And Yahweh promises this servant in this first line. He says, I will uphold you. In verse 6, you can drop down for a moment. He says the same thing there again. I will hold your, I will hold your hand. Yahweh ensures this servant, I will be with you. I will be there. I will ensure that you carry out this uh, this task. We'll see that. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll look into that a little bit more um, in a moment here. But then he also calls him my chosen one. Now, if you know anything about the Hebrew language, you know the word Messiah or Mashach is the Hebrew. But Messiah means chosen one. But he doesn't use the name. He doesn't use the word Messiah here when he says my my elect one or my chosen one. He uses a word that that uh, gives us some sort of um, connotations of of excellence of of virtue. There's something pleasing in this one, as he says here, in, in whom my soul delights, or my soul is well pleased. There's something in this one whom Yahweh is delighted. There's something glorious about this one. And it's because he's the second person of the Trinity, because he's the son of God himself. That's what's so glorious about him. But, and, and therefore, God is well pleased in him. Where do we find that language in the New Testament? At, at his baptism. When Christ, when Christ enters the this, uh, this scene, while well, we know he was born in in Bethlehem, but when he officially began his earthly ministry, that was upon his baptism. And at his baptism, we have that the, the voice from heaven that, that made it explicitly clear that this declaration from the Father, Jesus, this one coming up out of the water who was just baptized, he's this, he is this servant who was, who was going to come. He's the one that the Father delights in. As the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So, so uh, the father, well pleased in this one, because it's his own beloved son, and he's also his servant. We also find at Christ's baptism the fulfillment of the next line here. I have put my spirit upon him. Remember at Christ's baptism, as he came out of the water, as, the, as that voice said, this is my beloved son, the, the spirit came upon him visibly in the form of a dove and, and landed upon him. This was a, the special anointing, the special equipping of the Holy Spirit upon uh, upon Christ, the mediator, to fulfill and to be enabled to carry out his, uh, this commission here. So Yahweh is declaring to us clearly in verse 1 that the, the servant is fully equipped to do what it is necessary to fulfill this mission and this task. And it's no ordinary task. Look at the last line in verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, justice here does not mean judgment. He's not bringing judgment upon the Gentiles. He's, it means a righteous rule. It means freedom of oppression. It means, um, 
It means being under one who's ruling righteously, ruling according to truth and, and justice. That's what he's bringing. He's bringing justice to the Gentiles. This is a strange, a strange promise, a strange line to the Israelites of that day. If, turn, to, turn, to, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4 for a moment. Righteous rule was limited to the nation of Israel in the, in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 4. It was only the, only the Israelites that had such righteous, righteous rules, such justice in their lands. Deuteronomy 4, verse 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us? And for whatever reason, we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law, which I have set before you this day? So we have to understand in the Old Testament, we have, we have the nation of Israel. They're under, they're under Yahweh, their God. And they have righteous rules, righteous laws. And if, if they followed them, their, li their, li their life would have been freedom of oppression, would have been justice. But the Gentiles, the nations around them, they were under their little g foreign gods that they, um, that they were under. And they were governed, obviously, via human rulers. But it was always it was tyranny and it was oppression and, and oppression of the poor, murder of the innocent, and just a general injustice so that's the that's the 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 picture we have to understand here to understand to understand what he's saying here gentiles under oppression in bondage the people of of israel yahweh's people they had they they had right rule well this servant is coming to bring righteous rule to the gentiles he's going to bring freedom freedom of oppression to them but again obviously we're not talking about physically uh, um physically coming to rule the Gentile nations. This, we're talking about this on a spiritual level. Those who are in spiritual bondage, spiritual Gentiles, that's every single one of us who is not in Christ, and, and that's where we were prior to being in Christ. Spiritual Gentiles, because of our unforgiven sin, we're in darkness, we're in bondage, we're in oppression, uh, oppression of Satan and his devices, being kept in, in darkness. So this one who's coming, this servant, he's coming to bring... Justice, freedom of oppression to the Gentiles, it's to, it's, it's to the spiritual, spiritual Gentiles, those who are spiritually in darkness. That's what we need to understand here. So Christ's mission then is to bring freedom to them, to bring justice to them, uh, righteous rule to the poor, these poor Gentiles. So this servant then, is, is he's a servant, but he's a ruler. He's a servant of, of the Lord, but he's also a ruler. He's going to have a kingdom. He's going to be the one who brings justice and, and rules righteously. And again, not an earthly kingdom, not, not going to the Gentile earthly nations there, but this is a spiritual kingdom we're talking about. And his kingdom is made up of those whom he has freed from the kingdom of, of darkness and brought into his kingdom. We'll see that in a, in a moment. Now, who, now I, we're still looking at the presentation of the servant. Who is he? Look at his humility in verse 2. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. He's not going to arrive like the next tyrannical leader and, and, and come in with pomp and circumstance and, and war and fighting and, and um, coming in and destroying whoever he is and striking terror into the hearts of his people and doing whatever he can to, um, to, to establish control. He's not coming as the next oppressive tyrant to just bring more, more bondage and more oppression to the people. He's coming, he's coming in, in humility. He's coming to rescue those 
who are under oppression. He's coming to bring justice to these ones there and rescue them and free them from spiritual oppression and the bondage. And look at his compassion as well in verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. Smoking flax he will not quench. Matthew, again, in his, uh, in his gospel, applies this passage directly to Christ in his earthly ministry. As Christ went around, uh, he went around doing good. He went around healing people, freeing them from their, the physical bondage that they were in as far as physical uh, sicknesses, physical demon possessions, things like that. But Christ, Christ went around, and Matthew tells us in that passage that, that Jesus healed them all. He healed them all. Whoever came to him for healing, he healed them. He turned no one away. Well, that's, to, that's pointing us to what he's doing on a spiritual level, what we need to understand about this one, this compassionate savior and compassionate uh, rescuer there, that all, that come, all who come to him for healing, all who come to him for freedom from the bondage that they are in, for salvation, that he will turn none away. He will not bruise a, a reed that's been broken and crushed by the weight of, of sin. He will not, he will not destroy a, a, the smoking flax or a smoldering candle that has been snuffed out by the weight, by the guilt of sin. A candle, there's no light in that candle. There's no hope of salvation in that candle, but he will not destroy that one, but rather he, will, uh, he, he, has, he has mercy on them. He is a merciful, compassionate Savior, all who look to him, all, all who trust in him, he will, he will free. He will grant freedom from bondage, the bondage of sin that we are all in, every, everyone who looks to him. We, 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 we believe in the doctrine of election. We, we talk about God in sovereignly choosing all his people, all the ones that he's going to redeem out of darkness and bring into his kingdom. That, God has that all figured out before he even created the world. That's who our God is. We believe in that. But we never, ever are to allow that doctrine, that belief that, that, uh, in, in election to get in the way of the fact that Christ, that Christ is compassionate, that every single soul who looks to this Savior, every single one who looks to him in faith, for, uh, for freedom from that spiritual bondage will be freed, will be released. He turns no one away. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's election. But the one who comes, I will in no wise cast out. So come to the Savior. If you're not a believer this morning, come to this compassionate Savior. He will not turn you away. Don't think for a moment, maybe I'm too sinful. Maybe I've done something in my past that, that he's going to look at me and say, no, not you. Not at all. This, this one is a compassionate. He turns, he turns no one away. If, and if, maybe if you struggle with assurance, go to this verse. Again, look at this verse. If you think, could salvation really be for me? Could, could it really be that, that I can be saved, such a, a wretch like me? Look, look to this verse. He turns no one away. All who looks to him in faith for their salvation will be forgiven, will be accepted that is the, that is uh, this this servant this this one who who is uh, who's coming to bring freedom to to those who are in bondage all who look to him will be will be rescued but we also have the assurance that he will complete this mission as well his mission will not be thwarted he will he will prevail he will win he will he will do his um, his job he will bring forth justice 
for truth, the last line of verse 3, and he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. He, is, he will bring forth justice for truth or unto truth. That gives us the idea of the certainty of it. He, for, for certain, he will bring forth this justice that we talk about in verse 1 here, the freedom of freeing those in bondage. He will, he will do this. He's determined to... Uh, to complete this mission. He will not fail. He will not be discouraged till he has established justice. He does not do a half job. He does not leave half of his people behind, half of those who are looking to him for, for, uh, for forgiveness, looking to him in, for salvation, for redemption. He doesn't leave them behind. He does, he does not do a half job. He will complete this God-given mission. He will rescue every single one of them out of darkness and bring them into his marvelous light, as Paul says. And then the coastlands shall wait for his law. The coastlands, that's speaking of, uh, in Old Testament terms, coastlands are nations that are afar off, nations that are, um, that are the, the ends of the earth, so to speak. They're waiting. They're, they're waiting for his law, and waiting there in the sense of, of an eager embrace, a trusting in his law, embracing him. It's a, this shows us the fulfillment, gives us a little taste already of the fulfillment of his mission that we'll see more in 10 through 13 there. But the, this, uh, the faraway nations submitting to his law, it's a worldwide kingdom. It's built, it's made of those who, are, who rejoice in him. They're happy to be part of his kingdom under his law, serving him as their ruler. That's the servant. That's the servant who Yahweh presents to us here. A ruler coming to bring freedom to the oppressed. He's not a tyrant, but he's compassionate. He's a loving leader. He turns no one away. He's a ruler who will not stop until he has accomplished his mission here. He will go to the ends of the earth to rescue his people and to bring them excuse me, into his kingdom as joyful servants of the king. Let's look at the mission now in verse 5 through 9. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord God, who created the heavens and who stretch, and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. So this, so this is now speaking to the servant. This is Yahweh talking to the servant now as he's about to receive that official commission of his. But first, we have, he gives a, Yahweh gives him a reminder of who he is. Who is this one that's commissioning him to do such a task? He's the creator. It's not given as a threat here. It's given as a reminder of, a, of, a, of, an, of an encouragement. Yahweh says, I, I'm the creator, and I'm sending you, we'll see, I'm sending you to release captives that are in prison and conquer your people out of darkness. You have a, such a task, an immense task to do, but I, Yahweh, the creator, am supporting you and am there and holding your hand as we see in verse 6. Yahweh, the creator, the kingdom of darkness is ruled by strong forces, by powerful ones. But they are, but he's saying to the servant, remember, they're only created beings. You are, you are the, I, the, I, the creator, am upholding you. I, the creator, am here to uh, to ensure that you are successful in this mission. What, what an encouragement this is to the servant. We think of Christ, uh, uh, Jesus, in his human nature, as he's reading the scriptures, as he's studying the scriptures and learning the scripture. He's learning of his role as this servant, in his, according to his humanity. Luke 2 tells us that he grew in wisdom. He increased in wisdom. 
he, he learned more about this. He read the scriptures and he started to, and he learned more of his mission. This passage would have been such an incredible source of comfort to him that as he learned that he would have to face death, he would have to overcome death in order to accomplish this mission to know that the one who upholds him and, and ensures that he succeeds is the God of life, as he says here, the one who gives breath to, to, uh, to people and, and spirit to mankind. The one who has power over death is the one who is, uh, who is with this servant so that he can, he can accomplish this mission. And again, we see the necessity of the, of the incarnation here, that this servant is Yahweh himself and and uh, taking to himself human nature, the two human natures in the one person, Yahweh himself, the God-man, he has that power in himself so that he can, he can overcome, so that he can accomplish this mission. And then verse 6 gives us the mission uh, here. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, or perhaps we could say I've called you unto righteousness, and I will, I will hold your hand and I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people's. The John Gill um, says uh, translates the line, the first line there. I've called you in righteousness. Uh, I've called you. Gill says I've called you to bring everlasting righteousness to the people, and that that sort of goes with the with the line at the end that I will give, keep you, and give you as a covenant to the people. Here we have the provision of a new mediator between God and man in this in the, this covenant relationship, one whose whose righteousness will be and must be and is guaranteed to be worthy of eternal life. So righteousness, in simple terms, fulfilling the law, fulfilling the demands of the law. This servant will have a righteousness that fill, fulfills the demands of the law and that he will be a covenant to the people. First, how is he going to fulfill the demands of the law? He's going to live in complete obedience to that law. He has to perfectly uphold that law and all its demands in perfect obedience. But he also has to fulfill the, the demands of the curse of the law because those whom he, are, who he is rescuing, that we'll see in the next verse, they're lawbreakers. They're in prison. They're in darkness because they've broken the law of God and now they have the, that power of death in, is over them because they deserve death. But this one here, he is coming. He will fulfill the demands of the curse of that law as well of death. So, and we know Christ supplies both of those. He has a perfect righteousness, perfect obedience to the law of God, yet fulfilling the, the, the curse of the law for those whom he represents in covenant before God uh, um, by, by paying, by atoning for their sins through his death. That's how he is able to conquer his people from darkness. That's how he's able to bring them out of the prison houses and break them free from that bondage of sin by fulfilling the curse, the curse that's holding them there ultimately in, in, in bondage, pays for that sin so they can be forgiven, so that they can be freed from the prison house. And then in verse, at the end of verse 6 and verse 7, we have the official commission of what he's going to do. You will be a light to the Gentiles to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison and those who sit in darkness from the prison house. The servant is to go to those who are prisoners, prisoners in the kingdom 
of darkness, held there by Satan, held there by Satan, the accuser, the one who has the power of death over them because of their unforgiven sin. They have sin that's not been paid for. They deserve death. Satan, the accuser, has that power over them. Satan understands the justice of God, and Satan stands and says, says Yahweh, they are, they are guilty. They've sinned. They deserve death, and he's right. He knows God is a perfectly just God. Therefore, that's why, that is how Satan has power over them, and they're in their, they're in his prison houses there. But this servant, this, he's going to go into those prison houses. He's going to release them. He's going to release all those who look to him for to be released, all those who want to be uh, rescued from this bondage that they are in. Turn to Matthew 12 for a moment. We see something interesting, Matthew chapter 12. If you see in verse 18 through 21, that's where he quotes these first four verses that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. But now look at verse 22. There was one brought to him who was demon-possessed, and he healed him. So we have the, and then if we go down, we see the Pharisees, verse 24, they say, he's casting the, these, these uh, demons out by the power of Beelzebub, the prince, the ruler of the demons. That's how he can do this. But Jesus says in verse 28, I'm casting out demons by the spirit of God, because the kingdom of God has come. This is the kingdom that we've been talking about here, the kingdom that he's going to build as he rescues people from the, the, from the bondage, bondage to Satan and having that power of death over them. But Jesus tells us something in verse 29 here. How can, or, and, and how, he can, how he can do this. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. How can he first go into the prison house and take out the prisoners there unless he first binds the, the jailkeeper? Is essentially what he's saying here. And, and what he's explained, what he's shown to us in, this, in that passage, in the fact that he did cast out the demons here, is that he has power over Satan. And, and that he will, he has the power to take and release them. But he first needs to bind him. He first needs to face the devil on his own turf, as it were, and to overcome him and to beat him. Remember, Satan is the angel of death. He has the power of death. Christ needs to, to fight him, as it were. It's, this is a, a battle we're talking about here. He has to fight him. He has to take that power from him. He has to do that by, by, by facing death, by overcoming death, by dying, and then by rising again in victory, having beat death. That's how he can release those who are there. That's how he can bind the strong man. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. <clears throat> Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That's the incarnation we're talking about here. Coming, coming as man. Why did he do that? That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's how Christ releases those prisoners there, by dying, by dying, by conquering death, overpowering death, and therefore releasing us from those chains of bondage and, and death that Satan had over us. That's how he builds his kingdom. He takes back those who, are, those who are his, those who are rightfully his people. 
that God has given him from eternity past. He comes, he dies for them to atone for their sin so that their sin can be forgiven. They now have, they, they now, they have no sin, no debt owing, no longer the power of death over them. No longer does Satan have that power. No longer are they worthy of death. No longer are they under that, that power. He's taking back what is rightfully his. Go back to, go back to Isaiah 42 again. Verse, verse 8. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Yahweh created this earth. He created this earth at the beginning. His purpose was that so he could dwell together with mankind. That was his purpose. He's not going to allow anyone to get in the way of that purpose. He, Satan thought he had. Remember in the garden, Satan came to Adam and Eve. He tricked them. He tricked them to sin against God. He tricked them. He, and he thought that he had that, uh, he thought he had foiled God's plans. When he tricked Adam and Eve into, into sinning against God, then he held that power. He had that dominion over them and over all of mankind because we all sin. He has that power because they now deserve death for violation of God's law. But God says, I'm not going to give my glory to another. Excuse me. I am not going to have my purposes foiled. And we know that God's plan, even in the fall, in the fall into sin and the subsequent incarnation of God so that he can carry out this mission, it's all part of that one grand purpose of God, God being glorified through the redemption of sinners and bringing them with him to behold his glory for all of eternity. God's, God's purposes will not fail. His plans cannot be overthrown and he will not give his glory to another. And we have the sovereign guarantee of that in verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. If you have any doubt in your mind that perhaps, that perhaps God uh, can't overcome the darkness, that per perhaps he can't win this battle. We look around, we see evil all around us. We see evil that is part and parcel of this kingdom of darkness. And we, if we have any doubt in our minds that Christ can, 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 can he really overcome them, let this, this verse here then banish that thought forever from your mind. God's plans always come to pass. They will not be foiled. Things in the past that he said would take place, they always did. We have his sovereign guarantee of that. He has the power to do so by virtue of him being the creator, as we saw in verse 5. He has the compassion to do so, verses 2 and 3. And he has a resolve to do so, verse 4. He will, he will, his plans will not be foiled. He says, he says he will do this and he will, he will be victorious. Victory is certain because this is Yahweh, who were the creator, who we're talking about here. And then verse 10 through 13, we have the victory of the, of the servant. Yah, the vic Yahweh's victory through the servant, accomplished by the servant. Here, is, here in, verse, in verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. This is the evidence here of a successful mission. This is the evidence of, of the success of the servant here. The ends of the earth are now called upon to sing, uh, sing a new song. It's new. Something has changed. Something's different. They're no longer under the power of Satan. They're no longer in that, in that bondage of, of darkness of, and, and held by their sin there. They're called to praise Yahweh, sing a new song to him, celebrate this victory, celebrate the fact that he has, he has overcome these, these enemies. He has overcome and he has rescued you. 
he says here, his praise from the ends of the earth. That's the, the gospel. The gospel is going forth to the ends of the earth. Just like Jesus said it would do. It tells us here that, it, that it, this is the accomplishment of it in, in the, the ultimate future where it's ultimately completed this, this kingdom building mission of Christ. But it's, it's gone to the ends of the earth. Jesus said that it, he would build his kingdom. It would start in, in Jerusalem and then it would go to Judea, Samaria, and then it would go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Here we have the evidence that this is, this is going to be, this will happen. We have Yahweh's guarantee, the ends of the earth here, calling to worship this, uh, worship Yahweh, this one who's rescued him, worship him for, his, for the victory, that he has gained the victory. But notice something here, who's called to praise Yahweh in these verses. So he says here, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it. So all, all that is in it can refer to, um, to those who dwell on islands. That's, we find that often as well, the islands of the sea. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll bring that out in a second. We have the coastlands. We have those who, who, who inhabit the sea in the sense of live in the islands of the sea. There those who, so we have those who are associated with the sea. Then we have the wilderness and, this, and the cities in the wilderness and the villages that Kadar inhabits. So Kadar is wilderness, and all the cities in there are called to, to sing to the Lord, sing a new song for their redemption. And then we have the inhabitants of Selah singing. Turn, turn to Obadiah for a moment. This, this, I love this stuff. It's fascinating. So I'm going to take you on a little biblical theology journey for a moment here. Obadiah, so Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, chapter, uh, chapter 1, at verse 2. So Selah is, means high place or uh, cliff or rock, high rock. Obadiah chapter 1, verse 2. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. So I should say first, Selah is a city of Edom. Edom is the enemies of God. Edom would classify as one of those Gentile nations that, that, um, that we're talking about here in Isaiah 42, that he's coming to and he's rescuing those from. So, we're, so Selah, in Obadiah here, we have judgment coming upon, upon Selah. So it's a little bit different context, judgment coming upon Edom, a little different context, but judgment is coming because of their rejection of this one. Judgment is coming upon those... Um, there, for rejecting this Christ, so different, but something I want to bring out. Um, I will make you small among the nations. You will be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, or the clefts of Selah, so we're talking about the same place here, whose habitation is high, who you say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord." So why do, I, why do I point that out? There we have, we have those who dwell in the sea or are associated with dwelling in the sea. We have those who dwell in the wilderness. And we have those who dwell, essentially what he's saying is in the sky. They would dwell on this high, the top of this high mountain. It's associated with the, with the sky, particularly the night skies. He says, you're making your nest among the stars. Those three themes, if you trace those, th those themes through the Bible, especially through the Old Testament, the, the, the sea, the wilderness, and the night sky, those three motifs, three realms, they all point us to the absence of, of goodness, the absence of, of God 
uh, essentially the kingdom of darkness, just to make it to make it short and concise. That is what we are we're talking about here. C C is is absence of God and and judgment. That's why it's always referred to used to refer to as as judgment. Yahweh is always the one who quiets the quiets the storms and stills the seas and and uh, and and the waves and the and the billows and the breakers. He stills them all because he because it's judgment. It's death. He pacifies. Those things, but those so those three realms. We have those who are associated in the in the realm of darkness. Here are called upon to rejoice, called upon to praise, praise the Lord, praise Yahweh, because they've been rescued out of this. They've been rescued from that by this by this servant king and and warrior that has rescued them from there. Rejoice! They were held in darkness by Satan, freed freed from that, and now. Praising God, verse 12. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the, close, in the coastlands. They're praising this one who's, who's rescued them. That's, look at verse 13. This tells you why they're rejoicing. The Lord, Yahweh, shall go forth like a mighty man. He will stir up his zeal like a man of war or a warrior. And he will cry out. Yes, he will shout aloud. If you have the New American Standard, it says he will raise a war cry. And he will prevail against his enemies. So we see, we see now it's Yahweh who's this warrior. We, the servant and Yahweh are one and the same, as we saw at the beginning. Christ, it's Christ, the God-man, Yahweh himself, having become, in, as the second person of the Trinity, the servant of God to carry out this, but, uh, this mission. But he is, he is victorious. Yahweh is victorious here. He is a warrior. He's a man of war. We see that in Psalm 24 as well. Psalm 24, you can actually turn there for a moment if you want to, if, uh, to see that. <clears throat> Psalm 24 is, is a return of a warrior king back to his home. And he comes up to the, to the city. Lift, verse 7, lift up your heads, you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. The king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? Is Yahweh strong and mighty? The Hebrew says, "Strong and a warrior." The Lord, mighty in the battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and lift up the everlasting doors, and the King of Glory shall come in. He's the Yahweh, the King of Glory. Is a he's a warrior. He's a warrior in the battle. Christ is a warrior. When we understand what it took for us to be rescued from bondage, Christ becomes our war hero, our, our, our rescuer, our redeemer. That's why in Revelation 19, we see, we see him riding on a white horse, seated on a, a white horse whose name is the word of God, the word of God, the second person of the Trinity. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword and with it he should strike the nations. That's who our savior is. He is He's a warrior. It took a warrior to rescue you, and that's what we have here. He, and it says here he will stir himself up. To put it in the modern vernacular, we might say he's going he's gonna to pump himself up, or, or he will stir up his zeal. It says here he, he will, he'll pump himself up like a warrior, and, and then he will cry aloud, cry out, yes, shout aloud. As I said, the, the NASB says raise a war cry. It's probably a better translation. He will raise a war cry, and that's what we see on the cross, don't we? When, when, when Christ dies, as he dies, he cries out with a loud voice, Matthew tells us, and Mark as well. He cries out with a loud voice, and then he gives up, yields up his, uh, his spirit. But this cry, 
This is no scream of, of defeat. This is no yell of, of terror, not a yell of pain. This is a war cry. This is him having just, just sufficiently borne the wrath of the Father, having, having defeated, having, having borne that wrath, now stepping into the, into the devil's domain as a warrior to, to crush this devil, to bind the strong man, to prevail over him, as it says here, to take those, the keys of Hades and death, as we see in Revelation and because he's taken them from the devil, he has them now, and he's and he's and he's and he's releasing those who were in bondage there. He will prevail over his enemies. That's our savior. Think about that for a moment. We were we were spiritual Gentiles trapped in bondage, the oppression of sin and darkness. We're in the spiritual prison houses of darkness. No hope in ourselves. To escape, Satan has the power of death over us because of our unforgiven sin against the Creator. But our Savior rides in. He rides in on his on his white horse. He prevails over the over the prison uh, the, the the prison keeper, our enemies and his enemies, and he binds the strong man through his death, through his resurrection. He releases us and adds us to his glorious kingdom that sings the praises of this one who has rescued them. What a what a savior he is. He's a warrior, but, yet, but he's a merciful savior. He's humble and he's compassionate and, and he's kind. He's gentle. Those who are oppressed, those who desire to be rescued from bondage, he's, he's, he's merciful. He, take, he receives them all, as I said. But what a warrior he is to the, to the ones who held us in bondage. He, he prevails over them so that we might be freed. Those who remain in rebellion against him. Those who are in the prison houses and don't realize or are happy to be in the prison houses don't, don't want to submit to this king. He will prevail over those ones as well. Those who do not repent of their faith and look to him, he will prevail over those ones as well. Take, take, uh, be, take warning from that. But Christ is the warrior. He is, a, he is this warrior who rescues us from darkness, brings us into his kingdom his kingdom that covers the whole earth as we find out as we see here a kingdom that has no end a kingdom where we behold his glory forever that's our savior what a warrior and i hope that i hope this encourages you not just yes for our salvation as we as we see this uh, this warrior king that rescued us but when we look around in this world we see evil we see we see uh we see so much evil and it seems so powerful and it seems so threatening and perhaps we get worried or anxious but this savior has rescued us from the clutches of all that is all that is associated with the kingdom of darkness he's rescued us from that and he brings us to glory with him he's defeated our enemies through his death and through his resurrection, again, having beat, having conquered death when he rose on the third day. That's how we know he's successful, and that is how we can be so encouraged that he will succeed. He will, the, he, he will not fail or be discouraged until he has completed his mission, until he brings, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, he completes the kingdom, he gives, delivers it to the Father, and then comes the end. And then, and then all those who remain in rebellion against him are destroyed. And then the new, we have new heavens, new earth, as Peter says, wherein righteousness dwells, where we dwell with this one in glory forever. 
uh, uh, those who are, it's a global kingdom, the ends of the earth, this entire new created order where God and man dwells together, where the mission is accomplished, where the goal of creation reaches its telos, and God's people dwell with their savior, their hero forever. What a savior he is. And if, again, this morning, if you are not, if you don't belong to that kingdom already, if you are not in Christ, if you have not, if you're not freed from the bondage of sin, if you're still in your unbelief, you're awaiting certain destruction. You, you are on the wrong side of this warrior. But if you look to him now, before it's too late, before there's no more, no more option to be rescued, he will destroy you in, in an eternity apart from him. Suffering, so repent, look to him in faith. He will save you. We saw that. He will not turn you away. Look to him and you will be part of this glorious kingdom. He's humble. He's compassionate. He will not turn you away. And he is a warrior who can and who will rescue you if you look to him. So believe on the Lord Jesus today. Well, let's close there in prayer. Father, how we thank you for this most encouraging passage of Scripture that tells us of the, of the war hero that our Savior is, that he rescued us from the bondage that we are in. Lord, what a wonder it is to consider that. What, it is, what a wonder it is to see this one whom we see all the way back in Genesis 3, 15, promised, the one who would come, who would crush the head of that serpent. And Lord, we know this is our Savior, the Lord Jesus, as he through his own death and bearing the full weight of your wrath for us uh, that was due to us against our sin. He bore that weight, and through that and through his death, he bound the strong man. He crushed his head, and he delivered uh, his people from bondage to them. Lord, what a, what, a, what, a, what a wonderful, glorious thought this is. I pray this would encourage us as we go through this life. I pray that as we, as we deal with the heartaches, the trials, the difficulties of this life, that we would remember that we belong to this, the, the kingdom of, this, uh, of such a hero, such a warrior as this one, and that we would be encouraged to press on uh, to, to glory with him, knowing that that is in our future. Lord, thank you for the blessed hope that we have of one day dwelling with our Savior, beholding him face to face, the veil removed, and we dwell and, and we behold his glory for all of eternity. Lord, we thank you for this thought. I pray that it would encourage each one of your people here. Again, we ask if there are any this morning who are not in Christ, that you would shine that glorious light into the dark hearts of, uh, and the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, and where they would see the Savior, not as, a, not as a tyrant who's ridden in to strike fear into the hearts, but as, one, as, a, as a, the one coming with his arms open, saying, come unto me and I'll give you rest and I will free you, Lord, and that, they would, that today would be that day of salvation. And we pray this all in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.